Well, brothers and sisters, I would once again invite you to open your Bibles this time to Galatians chapter 4, and as you were doing so, to stand for the reading once again of God's holy word. Galatians chapter 4, as we continue our trek through Paul's letter to the Galatians, uh, we find ourselves this morning in verses 21 through 31. Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. Let us now give our attention to the word of the Lord. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Take your seats, brothers and sisters. As you're no doubt aware, Charles Dickens' great 19th century book, A Tale of Two Cities, it famously begins this way, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And that was certainly true in Galatia. At one level, it was the best of times. And we can say that because the gospel had taken hold and and churches had been planted and disciples had been baptized and, and Christ was being exalted and lifted up as people believed on him. But it was also the worst of times. A group commonly referred to as Judaizers had infiltrated the church's spreading lies so that now, by the time Paul picks up the pen to write the letter that is in front of us, there is a real sense in which he fears the gospel witness there might be spoiled. After all, As these churches are flirting with the law and their supposed obedience to it being the reason for why God accepts them, it looks like there are worms in the apples. We need to remember redeeming grace. And and by remember, I don't simply mean sort of mark it on the calendar or put it in your phone. But I mean truly love it and feel it and lean into it and live in light of it. We, we need to remember, brothers and sisters, that in the gospel, God makes great and grand promises to you and I. You see, this is exactly what the Galatians had forgotten 
As we mentioned last week, they had grown bored with Christ, bored with what Christ had done for them, and bored with what Christ had won for them. Like, like losing your car keys. They forgot that they actually received freedom in Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. If that wasn't bad enough, they had forgotten, apparently, that they were previously slaves. Slaves to sin. Slaves to the world and to the flesh. Slaves, the Scriptures tell us, even to the devil. They had forgotten that Christ had set them free, that His blood that He shed was the key to their chains. In fact, through His precious blood, their sins were forgiven. And, and not just sort of the domesticated ones, but even the really, really ugly ones. On top of that, though they were once enemies, they were now adopted into the family of God by the very Son of God Himself. So that now, as sons and daughters, they address God as, Galatians 4, 6, you will remember, Abba, Father. They'd also hit rock bottom. They realized their own righteousness was utterly insufficient. About as insufficient as you grabbing a cereal bowl out of your pantry and thinking that you can collect all of the ocean's waters in it. Their righteousness was insufficient to stand before God. And so in place of their own pseudo-righteousness, they had been robed with the perfect and spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ Himself. Let's be clear. They and us, we deserve sin. Or rather, we deserve death for our sin. The Scriptures tell us that the wages of sin is death, but the good news is that Christ, who has conquered death, has offered eternal life. The payoff to all of this is that solely on account of Christ, the people of God, us now and the Galatians then, in Christ we have joy and hope and assurance and peace. That was true for the Galatians until the Judaizers showed up. The living water that is the Gospel, it had been poisoned. Cyanide was now in the water, and Paul is concerned because they are guzzling it down. These once free Christians in Galatia, they now gravitated toward a whole host of Jewish traditions. There were numerous feast days to be observed, for example. Think Passover. Then there were the so-called holy days that had to be recognized, the Day of Atonement being the most notable. The menu also quickly changed. Now, depending on the time of the year, it would be incumbent upon you, for the sake of your spirituality, of course, uh, to abstain from pork or shrimp or anything that tastes good. Then there was circumcision. I mean, let's be real. Abraham was circumcised. And so if you want to be a son of Abraham, then you too had better follow in his footsteps and be circumcised like he was. That, that's how you know that you're really a Christian. In all of this, do you see what has happened? 
All of a sudden, these churches found themselves enslaved. And what's worse is they didn't even know it. The shackles that were on their wrists were tight. But there was a sense in which they also really appreciated the security that those shackles brought. And of course, the the chains were heavy, but it reminded them that they really were working really, really hard to please God. The point is simply this. They had traded their freedom for bondage. In effect, they had traded Christ's sufficiency for their own. This is all the background to Paul's letter before us this morning. And as you know, from the beginning all the way through the end, Christ will continue to plead with these churches. Christ is enough. Christ is enough. He really is all you need to stand right in God's sight. But unfortunately, they were still zigging when they were supposed to zag. So this all prompts Paul to ask the sarcastic question. You can find it in verse 21. He asked them, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you even listen to the law? In other words, do you really understand the road that you are traveling? You say you want the law. You say, bring the law on. But do you even know what it says? What it requires? Do you understand the curse, Paul would say, that it brings upon all those who do not obey it perfectly and personally and perpetually? Paul is in effect saying something like, you have better chances playing Russian roulette all day long than you do relying on the law for your standing before God. And yet the Galatians apparently had an insatiable appetite for the law, which provokes Paul to tell them a story, an allegory, actually. He calls it that in verse 24, doesn't he? He says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. And and from there, Paul proceeds to dive into the Old Testament, namely the story of Abraham and his descendants. And from that story to extract truth, a picture, really, a picture of slavery and freedom. Now, very quickly, Sometimes people get hung up on this whole idea of allegory. To be clear, an allegory is a story in which specific peoples and places and events stand for deep spiritual truths. The most well-known allegory, of course, is Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, right? So you've got Christian and pliable and hypocrisy and the interpreter, and the, and the story follows Christian from the city of destruction over hill difficulty through Vanity Fair all the way to the celestial city. It's a wonderful story. And so an allegory in a lot of ways is a fictional or mythical story that teaches us deep spiritual truth, just like Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. But here we have to issue a quick caveat, one that Paul himself would want us to issue. And that caveat is this. The events of Abraham's life, what we're going to see unfolded here, whether we're talking about Abraham, his 
his wives, his sons, etc. It's all real, right? It's not myth. Paul's allegory here in Galatians 4, it is all based on real, concrete, historical situations. So I don't want you to read in your Bibles and the read, the read the word allegory and, and hear in your mind, well, this is a myth. This is unicorns and, and beanstalks and fairies. That, that's not it. This is deep spiritual truth based on an actual historical situation. So with that brief caveat, let's see if we can't unfold Paul's allegory. In it, he draws upon Genesis 12, 15, 16, and 17. It is those early chapters from the book of Genesis that form the backbone of what we see here. And we can try to summarize it by beginning in verse 22 and noting what we read. For it is written, we are told, that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Verse 23 now. But the sons of the slave, rather the son of the slave, was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So, so stay with me. In Paul's allegory, he goes all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to Father Abraham. You'll know if you've been with us that he's done this in pretty much all of Galatians 3. He's, he's gone back and appealed to Father Abraham. But here at the end of Galatians 4, it starts with Father Abraham, but it quickly branches out, doesn't it? We move from one Abraham to two moms. And who are these two moms? Well, the slave woman was Hagar. We know that not only from the Genesis account, but she's mentioned for us explicitly in verse 24. And the other woman, the free woman, as she is referred to in verse 22, is Sarah. Now, from those two moms, Paul would have us to see come two sons. The slave woman had a son. His name was Ishmael. And the free woman had a son. His name, Isaac. And while these two sons had much in common, right? They, they were both boys. They had the same dad. They shared the sa same last name. They, they grew up in the same home. They had, they had a whole ton of things in common. But there's at least one thing that radically differentiated these two boys. What was that? Well, as Paul is going to bring out in this allegory, one was born a slave and the other free. And so on the front end, let's say that it is that one singular truth that Paul will lean into and press upon our hearts and our minds. That is what this allegory puts front and center. On the one hand, you have slavery, and on the other hand, you have freedom. That's 30,000 feet. Let's zoom in a little bit. you got two moms and two sons. But we're not done yet because these two women and their sons, they represent two entirely different covenants. Verse 24 says that, doesn't it? He says, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. What are these covenants? Well, Paul answers. One is, middle of verse 24, from Mount Sinai. So the one stands for the Mosaic covenant or the law. That's the one covenant. 
The other, while not explicitly mentioned here, it seems more than apparent based on all of Galatians that the other covenant is the new covenant. Moses mediates the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant, and you will know it thunders. Do this and live. Well, standing opposite is Christ, who mediates a better covenant, a new covenant. And while the old covenant thunders, the new covenant promises. I have done this for you. The first covenant shouts, works, law, obedience, do. The second covenant announces grace. Mercy, faith, done. And as you are reflecting upon these two covenants, redeeming grace, it is important to see this, just as the two moms are different, and just as their two sons are different, so these two covenants are different. They are not to be blended or mixed. In fact, to do so would be to destroy both of them. And the reason that they cannot be mixed, the reason that we must see that they are different, is because one is a covenant of works and the other is a covenant of grace. One demands, the other provides. One threatens, the other promises. One requires, the other gives. You see, the covenant of works, it requires perfection and it threatens curses. The covenant of grace is for sinners and it promises pardon. But we're still not done. Christian has not yet reached the celestial city and so our allegorical journey continues. Two moms, two sons, two covenants. Now, you guessed it, two cities. You have on the one hand the earthly Jerusalem, or perhaps better said, the Jerusalem from below. And then next to it, you have the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem from above. Verse 25 elaborates. Now Hagar, remember, Hagar is the mother of Ishmael who represents the Mosaic covenant or the law. So yeah, now Hagar, verse 25, is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She, we are told, corresponds to the present Jerusalem, okay? That that is the earthly Jerusalem, the physical Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that has a zip code. But, verse 26, here's the other city, but the Jerusalem from above is free, and she is our mother. So you've got the the two Jerusalems, I'm calling them below and above. Now, to flesh out the identity of these two cities further, to to really understand what Paul's allegory means by these two cities, we have to to grasp the final pair in this allegory. You ready? The final pair is the two communities. So so try to stay with me. I I know this is a bit convoluted. Take it up with Paul. You've got two moms and two sons and two covenants and two cities, and it all results in... Two children, two peoples, two groups, two communities. And these two communities are this. On the one hand, you've got the Judaizers, and then on the other hand, you've got the church. So you have the Judaizers and the church. Here's how it all gets worked out. 
And this will get us back to the identity of those two cities. Start back at the top. Hagar is a slave woman. She has a son, Ishmael, who is, verse 23, born according to the flesh. This mother and son represent the Mosaic covenant or the law. And that covenant, verse 25, corresponds to the present Jerusalem, or as I've called her, the Jerusalem from below. So catch this. The earthly Jerusalem is a type or a picture. Remember, we're talking about an allegory here. A type or a picture of the Judaizers. It is the desire to please God through one's own efforts. It's the idea that you can somehow, by your own resume, somehow stand before God. And if you were to ask, well, what are these great works contained on the resume? Here in Galatia, their resume would read things like circumcision, feast days, sacred calendars, religious rites, all that sort of stuff. So this community is the Judaizers. Let's put meat on the other skeleton. So you've got on the other side, you've got Sarah, the mother and her son Isaac, and we are told he was born, end of verse 23, through promise. So the covenant he represents stands in stark contrast with the Mosaic covenant. That covenant, beloved, is the new covenant. The covenant of promise and grace for needy sinners. What is the city attached to it? Verse 26 answers, the Jerusalem from above. That is to say, the the heavenly Jerusalem. And I want you to notice what Paul says at the end of verse 26. And she is our mother. The hour is critical. Paul is including himself in that group. So then who is this community that is represented here? Well, if the other group was the Judaizers, this group, beloved, is the Christians. It is those who have embraced Christ crucified for them. And the conviction that Christ is enough for them yesterday and today and tomorrow. Christ and Christ alone will be able to present guilty sinners righteous in God's sight. So you've got two moms who have two sons who represent two covenants who point to two cities who have two different communities. One community seeks to enter the celestial city their own way, right? Through their own works, through their own obedience, through their own efforts. While the other community seeks to enter the celestial city through Christ, through His works, through His obedience, through his efforts. This is all highlighted, underlined really, by verse 27, which you will note is a quotation from Isaiah 54. Now the context of Isaiah 54 is important. If you go back this afternoon and read through Isaiah 54, what you're going to find is that Israel found herself in exile owing specifically to her disobedience to the Mosaic Covenant. 
We have to understand that that covenant, it promised wonderful blessings for those who obeyed it. That's true. But that same covenant threatened horrible curses for those who did not obey it. And so we should just say sort of as an aside that in a lot of ways, the whole history of Israel in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, it was really a history of what? Their rebellion to God and God's grace. Until finally, the grace ran out. The hammer finally fell and God severely judged His people. You remember that God brought in Babylon to destroy the city and the temple and to deport the people. Well, it's within that context that we see our passage here in Isaiah 54. Nestled into an awful scene of judgment and death, is a promise of deliverance and life. Despite all their sin, the prophet announces, Isaiah 54, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. There's something of an ironic promise contained in our passage. Though the people, and this is the context of Isaiah 54, though they were scattered, though they were small, though they were experiencing the very judgment of God for their sin, the prophet looked forward to a day when the barren womb would be full and the children would be numerous. In other words, what Isaiah is speaking about is a day of restoration. A day of hope. A day when the promises of God would be fulfilled and a day when God's grace would be unleashed. Well, not only does this connect back to Sarah in a literal way in the story of Genesis. Recall she was barren and old. But God gave her a son and the promise line came through that son. But Paul says here that Isaiah's words find their fulfillment in the new covenant. More to the point, the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham have come in Christ. You will recall Galatians 3.16 that Christ was the true offspring of Abraham. And through Christ's life and death and resurrection, the promised heavenly Jerusalem has come into existence and has begun to bring forth children. And here's the key. I think this is what Paul is leaning into. These numerous children who were born from above, they belong to the people of God not because they jumped on their spiritual treadmill, not because they punched the clock, not because they've adhered to some Jewish practice or Jewish custom. Truth be told, it has nothing at all to do with them. And it has everything to do with Christ and who He is and what He has done. 
In other words, Isaiah's prophecy comes to fruition as the church embraces the gospel and trusts in Christ. And we know this is the case because of verse 28. Think of verse 28 as something of the allegory's uh, conclusion. It's the sort of, this is what I am trying to say. Okay? Notice how it all connects. Verse 28 begins. He says, now you, and notice how he addresses them, brothers. Remember, he is speaking to and of Gentile Christians. Those who are members of the churches in Galatia. And he addresses them, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Catch that? you got two moms, two sons, two covenants, two cities, two communities, and it all terminates here. So you've got Hagar and Ishmael and the Mosaic Covenant and the earthly Jerusalem. Those are the Judaizers, and they are in slavery. But then you have Sarah and Isaac and the New Covenant and the heavenly Jerusalem. And those are the Christians, and they are Free. Free from what? Well, free from the law's demands. Free from the law's threatenings. Free from the law's curse. Remember Galatians 3.10. All who rely upon the law rely on themselves and are under a curse. And so to be in Christ is to be free from the law's burdens. The law's accusations, the law's obligations, the law's curses. This then is the punchline. The Judaizers, because of their refusal, their stiff arming of Christ, and instead they're relying upon themselves and the law, they themselves are in chains and all they can offer is chains. It's not salvation, but slavery. But the true gospel it offers freedom. Not because God has sort of winked at sin or relaxed the law's demands when it comes to you, but because Christ has kept the law perfectly for you. And Christ has been exposed to the curses of the law for you. And so in a not so subtle way, Paul is essentially saying something like this. Why then, if you are free, would you seek to enslave yourself? If Christ has set you free by his blood, and he has, why would you go running back to bondage? Now, if you doubt any of this, the whole slavery freedom motif, you can see it a bit more clearly if you zoom out from the allegory for a second. For example, take note of the preposition in verse 21. You who desire to be under the law. Again, to be under the law is to be under its weight, its pressure, its demands. Just as the people of God were under the thumb of Pharaoh in Egypt, so the Judaizers have come with their slavery and are calling these Christians to return under the law. In a related vein, notice how Hagar is described. She was, verse 22, a slave woman. 
And as we have seen, slaves beget slaves. You will also remember, no doubt, that slavery has been a dominant motif throughout the entirety of this letter. Through Christ and His sin-paying death, the chains that once held us have fallen off. And we have been brought to God by faith who is our Father. But if you and I would refuse, spurn the Gospel of God, if we would stiff-arm Christ and rely upon our own works to get us to God, well, then we find ourselves in bondage to the law and under its curses. And the second that we do that, God is no longer our Father, but our Judge. More specific to the passage, the children of the Mosaic Covenant, they are, middle of verse 24, children of slavery. The earthly Jerusalem, she is, end of verse 25, in slavery with her children. It's chains, bondage. If you want to try righteousness by your own doing, fine, here are the shackles, have fun. That's the tone. This all culminates really with the infamous birth of Ishmael. Verse 23 puts it this way, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. That is highly significant. Highly significant. Through the flesh is to say through sinful human effort. Again, remember, this is an allegory. Ishmael's birth was a result of what? Human initiative, human ideas, human machinations, human works. It was, verse 23 again, according to the flesh. You, you no doubt remember the situation. God had promised Abraham offspring. But Abraham, not willing to wait on God and to trust his promises, sought to take care of things his own way. He, he was going to do it himself. So he took matters into his own hands. He bypassed God's purposes and laid with Hagar. That's the backstory, isn't it? Ishmael, we learn, both from Genesis and here from Galatians, was not the son of promise. Ishmael was the fruit of pragmatism and unbelief. And it all stands in stark contrast with the birth of Isaac, right? Because verse 23 marks the con makes the contrast this way. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, right? While the son of the free woman was born through promise. In other words, through the supernatural grace of God, according to the supernatural plan of God, and by the supernatural work of God. Let's not forget, Sarah was old. Abraham was even older. They knew how many candles were on their birthday cakes. And they were convinced that a son would not come from them. But they were wrong. They were wrong because God had made a promise. And when God makes a promise, He never, no, never relents. Perhaps now we can see how this allegory gets to the heart of the issue. 
particularly as it relates to our standing before God. Ishmael, who was born according to the flesh, he is the poster child for the Judaizers. Because their motto was similar to that of Home Depot's. You can do it. We can help. Maybe Nike hits a bit closer to home. Just do it. Or we might think of that that Bible verse, at least the one that so many people think is a Bible verse. God helps those who help themselves. The Judaizers loved that sort of stuff. They loved the idea of checking boxes, getting stuff done, working hard, and doing things by their flesh. Again, think circumcision, feast days, Jewish rituals, the whole nine yards. Then you have Isaac, the son of promise, whose birth was not the result of sinful and selfish human intervention, but instead the fulfillment of God's gracious and sovereign promise. Isaac was promised by grace and he was given as a gift of grace. Let's not forget that this whole idea of Isaac being born was so outlandish that Sarah herself laughed at the whole thing. Remember, that, that's what Isaac's name mean, means. It means laughter. Because when the angel told Abraham and Sarah they were going to have a son, Abraham, uh, uh, Sarah laughed the whole thing off. Like, yeah, give me a break, dude. There was nothing Abraham or Sarah could do. That's the point. It was so unbelievable, so impossible. If if Isaac was ever to actually show up, then you know what would have to happen? God would have to do an absolute miracle. He would have to do the whole thing by himself. And that's what he did. God, just like in the Gospel did for Abraham and Sarah what they could not do for themselves. So with all of this in front of us, and lest we miss the forest for the allegorical trees, let me me try and set all of this in the greater context of Galatians. What Paul does with this allegory is, is draw upon the Old Testament text to reveal that in a lot of ways, there are really only two types of people in the world. There are those who rely on the law and human effort and their own doing, thinking that by such vain attempts, they will make themselves right in God's sight. That'd be the Abrahams and Hagars of the world, thinking that by their own doing, that they will somehow bring all the promises of God to pass. And that, beloved, is the spirit of the Judaizers. It is all, verse 23, according to the flesh. But then there are those who rely entirely on Christ and His doing and His works and the absolutely scandalous free promises of grace that are found in the Gospel. That those people put no confidence in themselves or their doing or anything like that. Instead, they boast in Christ and in His cross. Convinced that Christ and Christ alone has made them right in God's sight. 
and that, that all of this, or rather that none of it, is owing to them or to their own flesh, but that it is all owing to, end of verse 23, just like Isaac was, promise. And that spirit is the spirit of the true Christian. The one who puts all his eggs in the Jesus died for me basket. So the only question left for us this morning then is this. Where do we fit into this allegory? When it comes to your heart, when it comes to the state of your soul, to use Dickens' line once more, is it the best of times or the worst of times? Well, the answer to that question will ultimately depend upon who or what you are relying on and resting in. Is it self or the Savior? Law or gospel? Works or faith? If you don't mind, I can return back to the allegory. Hagar or Sarah? Ishmael or Isaac? Old covenant or new covenant? Earthly Jerusalem or heavenly Jerusalem? Flesh or promise? Slavery or freedom? Beloved, what it comes down to is this. Is it all about you and what you have done? Or is it about Christ and what Christ has done? Those are the only two options. That was true not just in Galatia some 2,000 years ago, but it is equally true today. Those are the only two options that sinners like you and I have. We can do it, or we can trust in the one who did it for us. Let's ask God for grace. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for a new covenant, one that is built upon better promises with a better mediator. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. And we pray that your spirit would be at work even in these moments, stirring our affections for Christ, revealing our sin to us, and not just revealing our sin, but revealing the sufficiency of Christ in the face of our sin. We pray that we would once again tear up our resumes, that we would rest entirely upon Christ, and that we would grow in grace together, loving and encouraging one another to continue to trust in Christ. We pray these things in His name. And God's people said, Amen.